My wife tells me that when I speak somewhere, uh, either for the first time or someplace that doesn't know me, I have to say something about myself. People want to know who's this bloke talking to us right now. And so the little piece of my biography that I'll share with you is that I was 19 years old when I came to know the Lord. So I did not grow up in a Christian home, which means I did not grow up with the great art and literature of the Christian tradition. I was therefore somewhere in my 20s before I first heard the name C.S. Lewis. And uh, so as a 28-year-old, I read for the first time the Chronicles of Narnia. And there I was, a 28-year-old married man reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Not to my children, mind you, just for my own sake, because I was just learning of this man, C.S. Lewis, and, uh, and greatly enjoying the story. And the first book I read, as I mentioned, is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because that was the first one recommended to me. And The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in case you don't know, I'm likely most of you do, is kind of a Christmas story. And so if it's been a while since you've read that work, now's a good time to pull it out and read it again. How is it a Christmas story? Well, it's a Christmas story because when the children enter into the land of Narnia, they discover, it's an imaginary land that C.S. Lewis uh, made up, they discover that Narnia is always in Narnia, it's always winter, but never Christmas. Always winter and never Christmas. Oh, how miserable, right? For a child or for an adult, I'll admit. How miserable it would be to live in a land where it's always cold, the days are short, there's no, no foliage on the trees, the animals are in hibernation or hiding. It's always winter and never Christmas. The one redeemable aspect of the wintertime is that you get Christmas in the middle of it. But here's the little twist that Lewis gives to the land of Narnia. Christmas does come. Santa Claus comes. He brings presents. All those things that we associate with Christmas. And as he does, spring follows. Spring comes immediately with Christmas. Now, this is an imaginary land, and so Lewis can do whatever he wants within his imagination. But that was, that was hard for me to sort of wrestle to the ground. How does, how does Christmas bring with it spring? Christmas is not at the end of winter. It's really technically at the beginning of winter. And so how is it that Lewis uh, attaches springtime to Christmas. Well, I guess I just didn't use my imagination enough. The point is not to be particular and make things match exactly in our world, but there's the theological point that is to be made. And what is the theological point? That with the coming of Christ is the coming of life. What is springtime but a thaw, a reemergence of life in the world, more and increasing light in the land? And so Lewis is associating Christmas with, well, resurrection. With resurrection of life and light. And so that's my basic message for today. To reinforce for you and to help you think that Christmas is about resurrection. Now I know Easter is the time when we celebrate Christ's resurrection. I'm aware of that. And Christmas is the time we celebrate Christ's birth. But on a theological level, what Christmas means is resurrection. And to get at this and help us understand this, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1.
Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And let me read for us Matthew 1, 18 to the end of the chapter. So this is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray one more time. Almighty God, Lord in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bow before you today in song, in prayer, and before your word, because your word is holy and your word is true. And I pray that now you would strike our hearts with those realities, the holiness and the veracity of your word, to edify us and to glorify you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So Christmas is about resurrection. It's about coming back to life. And specifically, specifically, the resurrection of the presence of God that he is with his people is a powerful reality. And Christmas is about the resurrection of that. Did you notice that in verse 23? Verse 23 is the particular focus for this morning. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, Matthew tells us, God with us. Now, you surely know that Jesus actually never went by the name Emmanuel. Nobody called out to him, have mercy on me, Emmanuel. They called him Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. So, so what is this calling him Emmanuel here? Well, it's, it's a nickname. It's a moniker to reveal something of what Jesus means. The presence of Jesus in history means the presence of God with us. And that means three additional major consequences for humanity. If it is true that in Christ, God is with his people, that means three additional things. Number one, God hears prayer. If God is with us, then he hears our prayers. Number two, it also means that he forgives our sins. He forgives our sins. And number three, that he saves sinners. And so it's these four things. The presence of God His eagerness, therefore, to hear our prayers and forgive our sins and save us are the focus of our message this morning. And so to start, it would seem appropriate that I tell you a Christmas story. 
I want to tell you a Christmas story. And this Christmas story is about three kings. Three kings. Not the we three kings of Orient art. That's in Matthew chapter 2. No, it's a different story. The story I want to tell you actually happens over 700 years before the birth of Christ. But nonetheless, it is a Christmas story. 700 years before Christ. And we've got three kings that I would suspect most of us have not heard of. And so I'm going to introduce you to these three kings, perhaps for the first time, or remind you of them. Their names are Ahaz, Rezin, and Pekah. Ahaz, this is 8th century BC now, is the king of Judah, that southern territory from which the northern part of Israel broke off years before. Very small territory of which the capital is Jerusalem. He's the king of Judah. And then Rezin is the king of Syria, which is a Gentile nation, roughly in the same area where Syria is today. And then Pekah. Pekah is the king of Israel, or you could say northern Israel, those tribes that broke away from Judah in the 8th century. And so our story picks up in Isaiah chapter 7. So if you're following along in the scriptures, keep your finger in Matthew 1. We'll be back, but you can turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 7. And I'm going to read a few verses, and I'm going to explain some other things along the way. So Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah 7 and verse 1. In those days of Ahaz, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. And so there you go. There's the context of our three kings. Ahaz is the king in Judah. And he's there in Judah reigning. And Pekah and Rezin decide they're going to come down to Jerusalem and they're going to attack. But it's going to take some time. They couldn't yet mount an attack against it. But here they come. And so that's the context of our story. And so then it says in verse 2, When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Israel, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest Shake before the wind. In other words, Ahaz gets word, hey, you got two larger military forces who have joined together, making them even larger, coming against you. And so he's terrified. You'd be terrified too. I've gotten in the habit recently of uh, taking my dog on a walk very early in the morning, even before the sun comes up. Get a little exercise before the day uh, gets going. Uh, the weather's been good enough to do that. But a couple weeks ago, the wind was blowing uh, voraciously uh, in the morning as we would head out. And it would shoot through the trees, many trees where I live. And those trees would sway back and forth and make additional noise in addition to the wind blowing through them. And my dog was completely spooked. Normally she walks right beside me, but this time she's darting all over the place, hiding, doesn't want to come along. She's scared by the, these forces that work in the sky above her that she's just not used to. That's the scene that's going on here. Ahaz and the others are just utterly terrified, 
spooked of what is happening in the world. And you notice in verse 2, notice in verse 2 that Ahaz is not called by his name. Ahaz. Rather, he's called the house of David. When the house of David was told, so on and so forth. So just tuck that away. Why is that significant that he's called the house of David? We'll come back to that. But look at verse 6. This is what those kings say. Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in its midst. Let us set up Tabeel, the son of Tabeel as king in its midst. Myths. Now, who is Tabeel? Well, we really don't know. It really doesn't matter. The point is, these two kings have their design that they will supplant Ahaz, sweep him aside, do with him God knows what, and then replace him with this new puppet king named the son of Tabeel. Well, let's see how it goes. Get down into verse 11 here. Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And Isaiah said to him, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That's the verse that Matthew uses in Matthew chapter 1 that we just heard. It comes out of this story in Isaiah chapter 7 where Ahaz is under threat from these northern kings and the prophet comes along and says, Ahaz, I want to reassure you. I want to reassure you of something. And and what would that be reassurance of? Verse 15, for he shall eat curds, this is the child, shall eat curds and honey and shall Know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Then verse 14. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. To put it another way, listen, Isaiah. There's going to be a child and he's going to be born. And before he's old enough to know right or wrong. So what are we talking here? You know, before he's a toddler, a couple years, maybe less. Even sooner than that, those kings that you're afraid of, Ahaz, uh, Pekah, and Rezin, and Syria, and Israel, and their big bad armies, they're coming down to get you, they're going to be gone. They're just going to be gone. So when you see this child born, you know the clock is ticking. And you can watch him grow, and you can watch those kingdoms disappear, and then you will know that the Lord is for you and protecting you. And in that way, the child that is born is a sign to Ahaz that the Lord is for him and for the house of David. Now, I'm sure this was a very reassuring word from the prophet, though I imagine he would have rather have heard, you can get reinforcements from Egypt or something like that, right? And he said, no, there's going to be a child born. And you'll see how the Lord will work on behalf of you. That before this child is old enough to even know right from wrong, those kings will be gone. Now, did you notice again in verse 13, Ahaz is called O house of David. That's the second time now Ahaz is not called by his name, but called by his title, that he is part of the dynasty or the house of David. So it seems significant to know, well, why is he being called that? Why is he being called that? Well, I'll tell you. 
If you, if you would like any afternoon reading today, I can recommend nothing better than 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, if you need some afternoon uh, quiet time, get into 2 Samuel 7. I commonly tell my students that 2 Samuel 7 is the most important chapter in the Bible for understanding the rest of the Bible. Now, I, I believe that all the Word of God is inspired and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete for every good work. Amen. Every word is God-breathed. But some chapters simply bear more weight for interpreting the rest of the Bible. And 2 Samuel is one such chapter. Now, what happens in 2 Samuel? 2 Samuel is the story of David... When he's built up Jerusalem, he's built his own house, and he has peace and rest in the land, that the prophet Nathan comes to him. And through him, the Lord promises him two things. Two things. The first thing the Lord promises him is an eternal kingdom. That David, your house, your dynasty, your lineage of sons will be kings forever forever. There will be no end to the rule and reign of the house in David over the people of Israel, indeed over the world. Now that's an astonishing promise. Saul never got that promise. The judges of Israel never got that promise. Moses never got that promise. You understand? So David is being given something truly unique in the course of God's purposes in the world. That your house, your children, your sons will reign over Israel and over the people of God forever. And the second, that's called the house of David, right? The dynasty of David, the house of David. And the second thing is, a little play on words, the Lord says, oh, and by the way, your house will build me a house. One of your sons will build a house for the name of Yahweh. And in this case, house means what? It means temple the house of the Lord. So the Lord says, I will build you a house, build you a dynasty, and you will build me a house. The presence of God, the temple of God. Now I imagine most of us probably don't think about temples. If you did think about temples, it's probably Hindu temples or Buddhist temples or something like that, right? But the Bible is greatly concerned with temples. And particularly, the temple of Yahweh. And here's why. Here's why. The temple of the Lord represents the dwelling place and the presence of the Lord with his people. That's what it represents. And that's what it means. So in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon, David's first son, builds a grand temple for the Lord. And he prays in a prayer in 1 Kings 8. He says, the heavens and the highest heavens could never contain you. And yet, you dwell in this house. In other words, all of creation is not enough to contain the presence of the Lord. Amen. Yet, in a special way, in a covenantal way, in a gracious way, nonetheless, you are with us in a special, particular, covenantally gracious way. And here's what that means. That means the Lord hears our prayers. And so Solomon prays that in 1 Kings 8, that when someone comes to this house and prays, hear in heaven. It makes sense, doesn't it? 
if the Lord's presence resides in this building called the temple, well then, that's where he holds court. That's where he receives the requests and the complaints of his people. And so the ancient Jews, when they would pray, they would go to Jerusalem. That's the best case scenario, to go to the temple to pray. But if you couldn't travel to Jerusalem, you didn't just pray upward. What'd you do? You prayed toward the temple because from there, your prayers would go to heaven and the Lord would hear. Additionally, what that meant is that the Lord, that's the place, the temple's the place where the Lord forgives your sins. If you need to make a sacrifice of atonement for your sins, you couldn't just make it anywhere and everywhere. You had to go to the temple and go through the right steps. And the priest would offer the sacrifice for you at the temple. Again, it makes perfect sense. If that's where the Lord dwells for his prayer hearing and gracious activities in the world, well then, that's where you went to pray and to offer your sacrifice. And then thirdly, thirdly, the temple is the place where the unbelieving Gentiles who don't know Yahweh, who don't have his law, would nonetheless hear of the goodness of Yahweh, his prayer-hearing, forgiving abilities, and they would come to Jerusalem to receive uh, the truth of God's word and the wisdom of Solomon. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 10, you can read about the queen of Sheba who comes to gain wisdom from Solomon at the temple. And a lot of us know the story of Sheba, but what may be often overlooked is a little, little sentence at the end of 1 Kings 10 that says, all the kings of the earth came to seek wisdom from Solomon at the temple. So the temple is the place where God's presence resides. It's where he hears prayer. It's where he forgives sins. And it's where the nations must come if they too will be saved. It is indeed the light of the world. And the temple, therefore, which is built by the dynasty of David, the eternal dynasty of David, is there in Jerusalem. Therefore, back to Isaiah 7. When these two kings, Pekah and Rezin, say, let's go get that house of David, and let's bring it to the ground, and let's replace it with the son of Tabeel, whoever he is, the son of a fool, it's not just a war story that satisfies our historical curiosity to know what, what, what happened there and then. Rather, this is an assault on God himself. This is an attack on the very purposes of God to eradicate from the world God's purposes of salvation, forgiveness, and prayer hearing. Because if you can topple the house of David, you can topple the temple that he built then you can eradicate God's purposes in the world. If they succeed, they will stop God's very purposes of redemption. And that's why it's a story that matters. And so in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3, we read this. I went to the prophetess, Isaiah speaking now, I went to the prophetess, likely his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Same words, conceived and bore a son from chapter 7. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Meher Shalah Hashbaz. Now I just want to pause. We love giving our children biblical names. This is, this is a 
critical figure here in the story, this child who's born. But I haven't heard anyone name their child Maher Shalahashbaz. So if you're pregnant and considering having children, put this one on the list. I'd be curious to know if you take me up on that. But here's the point, verse 4. Here's what that name means in essence. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria, the capitals of those two nations, will be carried away by the king of Assyria. In other words, before this child is old enough to say mama or papa, those two kings will be conquered by still another kingdom. And so, in other words, the Lord has acted on behalf of the house of David, though it hung by a thread and was under terrible threat from these two armies, to preserve the house of David and to prolong his purposes in the world, to hear prayers, forgive sins, and save sinners. He has preserved David's house. A few generations, however, a few generations later, in the 6th century B.C., another king comes along. This one you've probably heard of. His name is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire. And he succeeds in capturing Jerusalem. Subsequent years of sin and drifting from the Lord has brought the Lord's punishment against Judah and against the house of David, that Nebuchadnezzar finally succeeds where these other kings couldn't. And he captures the king of Judah, takes him back to Babylon, and puts him in prison for 37 years. No one even hears of him for 37 years. Moreover, he flattens the temple to the ground. He takes that temple that Solomon built and raises it, R-A-Z, raises it, R-A-Z-E, raises it to the ground. Think about what this would mean. Think about what this means. If the temple is the presence of God, where he hears prayer, forgives sins, and saves people, what does it mean that the Babylonians have destroyed it? Does it mean that God is not here anymore? That he's gone? Where did he go? Does it mean that the Babylonian gods are like, like real after all? And they've come and they've conquered Yahweh and destroyed his, his house? That's how they would have thought. That's what they would have wondered. And now we're captured in a foreign land. Will he hear our prayers? That's a, that's a legitimate question if you attach prayer hearing to the temple and the temple's destroyed. You understand? Now here's the real kicker. Here's the real kicker. The reason we're in exile, the reason why the Babylonian army was able to conquer us is because of our sins. And you need the temple for the forgiveness of sins, but there is no temple. Therefore, can God forgive our sins? We're in this mess because of sin. We don't know if God can forgive our sins. It's a perpetual crippling Catch 22. And you can just forget about the nations coming here for salvation. This is vexing. This is a worldview disaster. And it is impossible to overstate the meaning of the destruction of the temple. The light of the world has been snuffed out. 
in the Old Testament, the exile is described as darkness. You can imagine why. It's metaphorized as death, death of Israel. You can understand why. And so for over 500 years, for 500 years, closer to 600 years, it remained this way. It was like an ongoing winter with no end and no Christmas. An ongoing winter with no end and no Christmas. And then, and during this time, during this 500 years, the people would tell stories. Hey, remember when, when, when God acted to save Ahaz? Remember when God did these things through Moses? And you could tell all the stories of Israel. But no activity for 500 years. And then Matthew comes along. And then Matthew writes the biography of Jesus. And let me show you something in Matthew, in addition to what we already looked at. Look at the first sentence. Go back to Matthew chapter 1. And look at the first sentence of the first book of the New Testament. The very first thing, right out of the chute, Matthew wants you to know. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The first thing Matthew wants you to know is that Jesus is a son of David. In fact, David is all over the place in chapters 1 and 2. Look at verse 17, chapter 1, verse 17. Matthew gives a genealogy of Jesus, then he summarizes it. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David, or 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Even history itself is marked off and cataloged according to David over against the exile. All of history is revolving around God's purposes for David. Chapter 2, verse 1 tells us that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Well, what's the point there? The point is Bethlehem is David's ancestral home. In these opening stories, Matthew is ringing a bell. David, David, David is back on the historical scene. He's back. And did you notice in verse 20 what Joseph is called? Son of David. Just to emphasize it one more time. It appears that Isaiah's son in Isaiah chapter 8 did not exhaust the meaning of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. Indeed, Ahaz and the house of David were saved. But even greater than being saved from an army is being resurrected from the grave 800 years later. You understand? And even greater than this, this sign for Ahaz is a true virgin who has a child. And that's Mary here in Matthew chapter 1. You understand? God has overdone the promise to Ahaz and delivered in a larger way through Jesus here in Matthew chapter 1. The house of David was all but dead and now it has been resurrected. And here's what that means. The temple is the next thing to be resurrected. 
Job point number one on the Messianic job description is to build the temple. Reestablish Emmanuel, God with us, the presence of God on earth. So Lewis was very deft in placing spring right on the heels of Narnia. Not because that's the pattern of the calendar, but because that is the sequence of history. The first Christmas, the first Noel, the arrival of the great and final son of David in history means that the winter is finally over. The thaw is happening. Light is back into the world. And life is coming out of death. Aslan is on the move. David is back on the throne. Exile was darkness and death for over 500 years. And with the birth of Jesus, a new age is breaking into the old order of things. The presence of God is back. Prayer is back. Forgiveness is back. Salvation for sinners is back. So when you think of Christmas, I want you to think of the resurrection of the presence of God, the reestablishment of the presence of God in the world, and what that means for the reality of God hearing prayers, forgiving sins, and saving you from the consequence of your sins. The cold is now thawing. The darkness is being reignited. Death is giving way to resurrection. And that's what Christmas means. Now what of this temple? What of this building of the temple? If that's what the son of David is supposed to do and Jesus is the son of David, when does he build a temple? Does he build a temple? And do we know, do we know of Jesus' temple building in his life? Quite ironically, in Matthew 24, he actually predicts a further destruction of the then-current temple. But see, the problem with that temple is it wasn't built by Jesus. It was built by somebody else. So when does Jesus build a temple? Well, the answer is in the cross. In the cross. When Jesus, at the end of his Matthew story goes to the cross and he dies. Make no mistake about it. He is not dying for the penalty for his own sins. He has no sins. He's dying to atone for the sins of his people. That's a temple activity. He is finally providing the once and for all, the last sacrifice of all sacrifices to forgive his people. And then, and then, in the resurrection in the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus, he is promising that he will be with his people forever. Turn to the very last verse of Matthew. We looked at the first verse. Let's look at the last verse, Matthew 28. This is the last place I'll ask you to turn today. Jesus in his life is doing temple activity by atoning for sinners and then being raised to life. And listen to what he says when he's raised to life. Matthew 28 and verse 16, he gathers together his 11 remaining disciples and he says to them in verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, I'm ascending to the throne of David. Go therefore 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. I am with you. When we first hear of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, he is called Emmanuel, God with us. And then the last thing he says after the resurrection is, I am with you. Here's what this means. Here's what this means. Number one, Jesus is God. God with us, I am with you forever. And the people who are taught, verse 20, teaching them all that I commanded, people who are taught and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they are the ones among who Jesus resides. The ongoing presence of God in Christ is with his people. Therefore, the church, the international witnessing and worshiping community of Jesus taught Jesus followers is the ongoing temple of God in the world forever, Jesus promises. Do you understand? The church, the church built by Jesus through his cross and resurrection and gift of the Holy Spirit, we could add, is the place where God dwells. It is the place where the atonement that Jesus made in his self-sacrifice is applied for forgiveness. The church is the place where through Jesus, God hears our prayers and is eager to answer our prayers. And the church is the place to which sinners must come to hear this good news of Jesus Christ and believe, for faith comes by hearing. This is the temple. You are part of the temple that Jesus has built, that God planned from 2 Samuel 7, actually even before that, but runs through 2 Samuel 7, goes through the threat of Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, comes out the other side of the grave of exile, and through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus has been adding stone after stone to his building of the temple. Not a temple of brick and mortar, but a temple of flesh and blood. Not a temple where is in one location people have to come. Rather, a temple that spreads out all over the world. And wherever we go, we take the gospel and we take the glory of God and the presence of God with us. Jesus is with us forever. And in his birth, death, and resurrection, that's the Christmas story that turns history on its axis, changes the world, and unleashes on the world a power called the gospel on the lips of his people to expand his presence, to hear more prayers, to forgive more people. So the church, the church of Jesus Christ, is the indestructible permanent temple. Not to be, just never to be destroyed again. Gates of Hades will not prevail against it. There'll be no second exile or something like that. For Jesus is with us forever. The place where he hears prayers, forgives sins, and idolaters come to be saved. Yet, ironically, in a lot of ways, 
are we, is this world not still in a kind of perpetual winter? Is it not? And I don't mean whether or not there's a pandemic. I don't mean whether or not there's a vaccine. I don't mean anything regarding elections or stock markets or things like that. I mean, the world is in a winter for you, depending on your response to Jesus. Do you understand? For those of us who have heard the teachings and put our faith in Jesus, who have responded to the call, follow me, you have come out of winter, you have come out of the grave, you have come out of exile with King Jesus. But for those of us who have not been taught or who refuse to learn or believe, well, you remain in perpetual winter. What, what, what hope do you have? In fact, now is a better time than any to say to your neighbors, say to your unbelieving coworkers, say, you know, doesn't it feel sometimes like the world is just like in this perpetual winter, darkness, cold, and death, with no Christmas? Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Doesn't it feel that way in 2020 particularly? See what your neighbor says. And then be quick to tell them about the rescue, the light, the resurrection that comes through Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Again, Lord, we thank you for your word that is illuminating and enlightening our minds, softening our hearts, giving us faith. We pray that that would be the result exactly now. And if there be anyone here who does not know you, who has not responded to your teachings, that today would be that day, that you would draw them through the light that is irresistible to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.